At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. Listen to the New York Historical Society's podcast, For the Ages, hosted by David M. Rubenstein, engaging the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics on the people who have shaped America. Although Jimmy Carter left the White House in January of 1981, his career in public service was far from over. Listen to The Unfinished Presidency, Jimmy Carter's journey beyond the White House, as award-winning historian Douglas Brinkley explores the lessons of Carter's life and legacy. And in the harsh New England winter of 1692, a minister's daughter began to scream and convulse as if possessed by a demonic spirit. This incident marked the beginning of a year-long panic in Salem, Massachusetts. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stacy Schiff uncovers the origins of this phenomenon in The Witches, Salem, 1692. Get For the Ages wherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys, episode 421, Evacuation Day, the forgotten holiday of the American Revolution. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're telling a sort of holiday story about New York City and the Revolutionary War. But it's not exactly a holiday that's top of mind for many people. No, because we are talking a holiday here, but not Thanksgiving or Hanukkah or Christmas or any of the others. This is a forgotten celebration that marks an event which occurred 240 years ago this month, the day in which the British finally left New York City after a long and arduous battle with the colonies now brought together in victory to form the United States. Yes, the day that the British left New York City, or more precisely, the day they evacuated New York City after occupying it for seven years during the American Revolution and using it as their base of power. And the events of that day, November 25th, 1783, inspired annual celebrations, you know, of patriotism and unity and even a bit of rowdiness, November 25th would become known as Evacuation Day, and it was celebrated for decades and decades. But then gradually, the celebration sort of faded away. Of course, Americans may know late November for another historically-themed holiday, Thanksgiving. 
a New England-oriented celebration that eventually took the place of Evacuation Day on the American calendar. But we are here to tell you, listener, you should celebrate both. (laughs) Or celebrate them together. I mean, come on. You could put a little, you know, tricorn hat on your turkey. (laughs) (laughs) Or paint your cornucopia if you have one of those. Paint it red, white, and blue. Oh, I'm sure they have cornucopias. I'm sure everybody does. Sculpt some mashed potatoes into Washington crossing the Delaware. Make some Marquis de Lafayette French tarts for dessert. (laughs) Oh, I know some French tarts. Um, (laughs) You do. (laughs) but, But seriously, no, we are not a cooking show. We are a history show. And today we'll be taking you back to that glorious day, for Americans at least, the glorious day when the British finally left New York City, November 25th, 1783. We do want to emphasize the gravity of this particular moment and how significant it was. New York was a British stronghold for most of the war, and it was the very last major city to leave British hands. The American army did not seize New York in a battle. It was simply relinquished. But by November of 1783, the British had long since been defeated. The final decisive battle of the Revolutionary War had taken place in Yorktown, Virginia, more than two years before. So this today is the story of New York in that kind of strange window of time, right, between Britain's ultimate defeat and their final evacuation from the United States through the city of New York. And finally, we'll let you know where and how you can really celebrate Evacuation Day today, if you so choose. (laughs) (laughs) But first, we have to say um, that there's probably a better known or at least equally known Evacuation Day that is celebrated up in Boston. Yes, Boston has its own Evacuation Day, celebrated each year on March 17th, marking the end of the first major battle of the Revolutionary War, the Siege of Boston, where the fledgling Continental Army actually managed to send the Redcoats packing. That, however, was General George Washington's first major victory. It was in 1776, at the start of what would be a long and excruciating war. The British quickly rebounded from that defeat. And in July of that year, they landed at Staten Island and during the next three months managed to sweep Washington and his army out of Long Island and then out of New York and the island of Manhattan. The British then proceeded to turn New York City into one of their central strongholds for the remainder of the war. And we have an entire show on this dramatic turn of events. Episode 266, New York City during the Revolutionary War. But now, Greg, why don't we jump forward a few years, Mm -hmm. okay, through this occupation, through most of the war. What we're discussing today takes place years later. Yeah, in fact, let me begin the story in October of 1781. New York City, by this time, by this year, was an absolute mess. Oh boy, yeah, 1781. So New York City um, at that point was located really just at the tip of Manhattan. Its northern border was around the location of today's City Hall, which at the time was an open commons, right? A a sort of public Mm -hmm. park. 
Yes. So with that as kind of a northern border, New York City was more or less just the area of today's financial district. Now, the population of the financial district today is roughly 150,000 people. Mm-hmm. And that's with Battery Park City, which clearly did not exist during the colonial era. Mm-hmm. Back in 1781, before apartment buildings, of course, there were about 50,000 people. And by 1781, they were mostly loyalists or people too poor to move during those many years of occupation. And really, this number fluctuated really from time to time, from month to month, as thousands of British troops would often descend upon the city. So essentially, it was a military encampment. And that number could well be on the low side because, you know, Mm -hmm. as the war continued, loyalists who were living in other colonies, like New Jersey and Pennsylvania, came to New York City. They moved here because this was a safe spot for them. It was a haven for loyalists or or Tories. I guess we'll be using each of those terms, loyalists or Tories, sort of interchangeably today. Pro-British. Back in 1776, there had been a terrible fire in New York that destroyed almost a fifth of the city. None of that was being rebuilt, obviously. Well, right. Why rebuild in the midst of a war, right, when you didn't know how it was all going to turn out? You know, the, mm-hmm. the city could be attacked at any moment. Plus, don't forget that New York was low on wood and other supplies, right? Trees were being chopped down for firewood. Buildings were being, you know, ripped down for firewood. Old Trinity Church was still a burned-out ruin in 1781. The waterfront was in shambles. In fact, there had been another major fire in 1778 that destroyed buildings on Water Street, hindering the delivery of food and supplies. Hundreds of people were encamped at Fort George, the old Dutch-era fortification at the tip of Manhattan. (laughs) Then there were also many thousands of enslaved people in New York who had escaped from various places under the British promise that they would secure their freedom by supporting the Tories. These refugees lived under the worst conditions along the northern edge of town. So then New York City had this giant burned-out district. Um, There wasn't enough housing, and there were these loyalists and enslaved or formerly enslaved people, and also others who were just unable or unwilling to move away. All of these people cramming in and at the same time being protected by British and Hessian troops. Yeah, but there was this rift even between the loyalist citizens and the military. To quote author Thomas Fleming from his book, The Perils of Peace, quote, Since 1776, New York had been ruled by the military. The loyalists repeatedly asked the army to let them form a civilian government, but they got nowhere. The generals had no intention of surrendering the summary powers that they enjoyed. They took over almost every church in the city and used them for hospitals, jails, and barracks. The army often ordered an individual or a family to vacate a house to provide a comfortable residence for a newly arrived general or colonel, unquote. I can see how that wouldn't really make them very popular with the locals. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was also another significant population here that we haven't mentioned, prisoners, Captured American fighters and, you know, others, spies, suspected rebels. 
the British kept these people in makeshift prisons um, that were located on land, converted churches and such. But also thousands were imprisoned aboard horrific prison ships that floated in Wallabout Bay near the town of Brooklyn. Yeah, Brooklyn and Long Island were in British hands as well. And along with those prison ships, there were new fortifications that were built throughout Brooklyn during this occupation. Troops were always on the lookout for attacks from the sea and, of course, for spies among the population. The region was in a state of paranoia and panic. So you can imagine what the reaction was in October of 1781 when the city received the following news. The commander of the British forces, General Cornwallis, had surrendered. Now, the French had entered the war on the Patriot side, greatly bolstering Washington's army, which by 1781 had been severely weakened and greatly demoralized even. But together, the Americans and French forces proved unstoppable. In September, a French naval battalion led by Rear Admiral Francois-Joseph-Paul de Grasse prevented the British from receiving reinforcements in Virginia during the Battle of the Chesapeake. The combination of Continental and French forces then were able to overpower and then entirely defeat the British Army in Yorktown, Virginia. Cornwallis asked for articles of capitulation, and then two days later, the army surrendered. It seemed impossible, but the war was finally over. It must have been so surreal to be a Tory, right, or a loyalist in New York. I mean, one day you're seemingly secure, right, in your knowledge that you had the entire British crown behind you. And then one day, a message arrives that basically says... Sorry, you know, your side lost. The loyalists who barricaded themselves here in New York may not have realized at the time that they were actually lucky to be receiving this terrible news by a proclamation. Because earlier that summer, Washington and the French reinforcements had actually gathered in White Plains, New York, and Washington wanted to stage a possible attack on Manhattan to retake the upper reaches of the island that summer. That would have certainly resulted in a great loss of life here. But that was in August, and upon word of de Grasse's French battalion, instead, the armies headed down to Virginia, where, it would turn out, victory awaited them. So, back to New York. What were these mm -hmm. loyalists who were living in New York supposed to do now? once they got this news. I mean, they had homes here. They had jobs here and families here. Were they expected to just kind of like pick up and go? Well, by this point in the war, late 1781, the British still possessed three major cities, New York, Charleston, and Savannah. Okay. Now, they had pulled out or been run out of most other cities by this time. So upon word of the British surrender, those loyalists who were able to leave the colonies did so. Those that couldn't make that journey, at least initially, essentially flocked to one of these three cities. Okay, so which for New York meant that even more people were arriving right into the city, which was already, you know, overcrowded. Mm -hmm. So New York was kind of becoming, you know, something of a refugee camp. And the problem soon got worse because the British evacuated Savannah 
in the summer of 1782, and then Charleston followed a few months later. So yeah, basically by 1783, in terms of the colonies, in terms of cities, New York City was one of the last holdouts, their only major haven. But this is not to say that loyalists were left alone or treated well by non-loyalists. Let's not forget the New York state government, which since 1778 had been located in Poughkeepsie, north of the city, not 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 Albany Albany. at this time. No, it's Poughkeepsie. And they punished Tories throughout the state with various anti-Tory laws. Now, with victory assured, two incredible pieces of legislation passed, maybe even disturbing laws in retrospect. Mm. The Citation Act of 1782, quote, which restricted the rights of persons within the enemy lines to collect pre-existing debts from patriots, unquote. So Hmm. if you were a patriot indebted to a loyalist for any reason, don't worry about it. Debt forgiven. (laughs) And then the following year came the Trespass Act, which, according to Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs in their book Gotham, quote, permitted patriots to sue loyalists for damages to property in occupied areas of the state. So uh, this meant then that all of those New Yorkers who had fled when the war began um, and who took the side of the patriots or the rebels could now return home to New York, reclaim their homes, and even ask for back rent, right? And Mm -hmm. damages for the years they were gone. And sure enough, starting around the end of 1782, New Yorkers began coming back to the city, forcibly demanding the return of their property. This was quite hazardous, as you can imagine, because the remaining Tories had Mm. no place to go. And yet these returning New Yorkers had the heft of state law behind them to throw people out of their houses. It was a very intense moment, and a board of claims was formed to mediate situations. Meanwhile, what was happening on those horrible prison ships? Well, for a time, many prisoners were traded and exchanged for the many thousands of British troops that Washington and his army had captured. But sadly, some prisoners actually remained on these ships until late in 1783, and in all an estimated 11,500 American prisoners would die on these ships during the war. 11,500. I mean, making them deadlier than any other single battle of the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. Now, you can listen to my show from earlier this year on the Brooklyn Navy Yard to pick up the rest of that story. But this just goes to illustrate the messy and very tragic end to this conflict, even though the handover itself wasn't necessarily violent. Right. And the situation wasn't resolved immediately either. I mean, you said the last battle was 1881, But the Mm -hmm. news of the end of the war took time to get around. And also, you know, keep in mind this new United States was but one area of conflict between the British and the French. Just one of the theaters of war. 
Yes. Just one piece of the international chessboard that included both international powers like the Dutch and the Spanish and even North American indigenous tribal groups. Meanwhile, Washington and the Congress in Philadelphia, they were actually still uncertain whether or not King George might just send over more troops to continue engaging in a fight. They were still under a belief that the war might still be going on. So, General Washington then had to be prepared for anything. Yes, the Continental Army was actually stationed on the west side of the Hudson River, on the Hudson Highlands, at a spot we know as West Point. Hmm. But of course, thankfully, they weren't needed. Those on the Loyalist side got the message. They didn't need any further encouragement to leave. 10,000 people left New York by the summer of 1783 and an additional 8,000 left by September. Now, most of these loyalist friendly people weren't even necessarily going back to England. They left to Canada, to the Caribbean, wherever. To put a spin on that old bartender line, you don't have to go home, but you probably don't want to stay here. But these numbers reflect just the civilians, right, who were taking off? Yes, the civilians who lived in New York who were loyalists. But not all those who were aligned with the loyalists left, by Mm. the way. I would even say that most of them stayed on. Many simply disavowed their former allegiances and became new citizens of the United States. Ah, So that was another option, just Mm -hmm. kind of swear allegiance to the new country and stay put. Yeah. But of course, the British Army, the military couldn't do that. Why were they even still around? Well, to answer that question, let's turn our attention here to a man named Sir Guy Carleton, who in these years post-Yorktown was the chief of the colonial British forces. His central reason for maintaining an active force here in New York was to protect those who aligned themselves with the Tories and protect them until such time as they were able to escape. So a protection squad almost. Mm -hmm. And let me just restate that this number of fleeing civilians also included many enslaved people who had been promised their freedom by the British. This was rather a bold and controversial maneuver by the British, incidentally. Mm -hmm. Today, we'd definitely consider it commendable because the Americans actually considered slaves to be property, and Americans demanded their return. There were even a few slave owners who came to New York looking for these people they believed to be their property. However, over 4,000 free black loyalists did take up the offer to leave, And many settled in Nova Scotia and eventually, over time, Sierra Leone in West Africa. Yeah, that is such an important point to underscore. And it kind of messes up our, you know, sort of streamlined school book version of Mm -hmm. the revolution, doesn't it? I mean, the Americans, led by General George Washington himself, wanted to return escaped enslaved people to their owners. And the British helped them escape the, quote, land of the free to actual safety in Canada and elsewhere. Okay. So then when did General Carleton, who was in charge of the British forces in New York, finally decide then that this is it and our army has to go? 
It became a matter of urgency after September 3rd, 1783, with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, which officially marked the end of the war and the recognition by the British of the sovereignty of their former colonies. It was only a matter of time before, to use another tavern metaphor here, we're taverns on the brain, it's 4 a.m., the lights are turned on, it's time to settle up and go home. It's always exciting to find newspaper articles where you can see events like these kind of play out in real time. Mm -hmm. From the American Daily Advertiser in Philadelphia, November 18th, 1783, quote, According to the latest advices from Jersey, the final evacuation of the city of New York is to take place on Thursday next, when Sir Guy Carleton is to deliver up the government to the civil authority of the state and Colonel Henry Jackson with the Regiment of Continental Troops to take possession on behalf of the American forces. However, it is said that any British troops who may unavoidably remain after that day are to retire to Long Island, where they will stay until vessels can be provided to carry them off. The same accounts mentioned that His Excellency George Washington is daily expected to visit New York." Wow. The final evacuation of the city of New York is to take place on Thursday next. And that date, of course, was November 25th, 1783, a date that would become known as Evacuation Day. We'll get a breakdown of that day's highly dramatic events right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. 
But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So we just read off a couple of dates from that newspaper article published on November 18th, 1783. Did the actual departure of British troops follow that plan? Well, pretty much, yeah. The the British general, Carleton, did wait for every loyalist who wanted to leave New York City to get out. And then on November 21st, he did order his troops to leave Upper Manhattan and Long Island. And by leaving Upper Manhattan, they allowed Washington and his troops to then enter up there. That's right. Washington and New York Governor Clinton, who met up in Westchester and then headed down through Yonkers into Harlem. But then they had to wait until they received news, you know, that the Brits had left. They were just following behind them. And so they waited at a tavern in Upper Manhattan, which was located about where 125th Street and Frederick Douglass Boulevard are today, just down the block from the Apollo Theater. Mm. So they met in a tavern, the first of many taverns in this show. Yeah, that's what they did back then. <laughs> yes. Can you imagine if you just happened to also be at that tavern, like, you know, <laughs> on a whim, having a drink? Talk about a celebrity sighting. Remember when we thought seeing Parker Posey was a big deal? (laughs) Honey, you'll never believe who I saw today. (laughs) Was that a hiccup? It was my best podcast attempt at a hiccup. Um, okay. so anyway, so how long did they have to wait up here at the tavern? Just three days. I mean, I don't think they were in the tavern for three days, but they waited up there <laughs> until November 25th. Uh, and obviously, they weren't alone. Aside from his other top officers, Washington had been preceded by about 800 troops um, from New York and Massachusetts who were camping out up there around the area of today's northeastern Central Park. So I think that they were occupying, you know, areas that the British troops had been occupying Mm -hmm. before. So they were just sort of switching places. The British general then, Carleton, had set his official departure time at noon on November 25th. And so Washington and his men, you know, they waited until just after noon on the 25th for word to come that the last British troops were indeed marching down the Bowery to the waterfront and um, boarding vessels that were taking them out to their ships out in the harbor. And the news came that the Brits had indeed left the island. It must have been a delirious scene to see with their own eyes for a population that had been through so much. Well, yeah, remember that many of the people, as you said, who were witnessing their departure here hadn't been here during the war. As you explained, the city's population really had changed pretty dramatically. 
And meanwhile, as you pointed out, New Yorkers who had earlier fled the city had come back to reclaim their homes and clean up. So, yeah, you can imagine that many, if not most, of the people watching the Brits leave had been displaced during the war. You know, they had suffered, their property had been stolen from them. And so, yes, watching the Brits leave, they must have been absolutely elated. And I've even read about a few New Yorkers getting a bit carried away by this special (laughs) moment. (laughs) I think you might be referring to the possibly apocryphal story of a certain Mrs. Day um, who ran a boarding house on Murray Street downtown And uh, as the British troops were marching off, she enthusiastically pulled up an American flag, you know, over her boarding house a bit too soon, it turns out, uh, because of British authority. The provost, Marshal Cunningham, reminded her that it wasn't yet noon on the 25th, and he demanded that she take it down. But she refused and, in fact, (laughs) smacked his face with her broom and chased him away. (laughs) Sassy. Sassy Miss Day. Don't mess with Mrs. Day. (laughs) You don't ever mess with Miss Day. Which is the reason why her street is today called Broom Street. Did you know that? That's not true. (laughs) That is not true. No, that is not true. Don't put out that misinformation. I just I would like I would like to imagine that that's true. But well, anyway, sounds like there's a a certain amount of getting even happening. Yeah, a little bit of street justice. Patriots reportedly thronged the streets and smashed signs that were hanging outside businesses. You know that had been welcoming to British customers throughout the previous seven years. And who exactly was in charge at this point? Well, once the British left, the city was technically under the temporary control of General Henry Knox, um, who had been a senior general for Washington. He was evidently very good at securing things. In fact, Fort Knox would be named for him, Greg. Oh, what a golden piece of trivia. (laughs) But meanwhile, yes, Washington at the same time was making his way down Manhattan um, with his men and with Governor Clinton. And they finally arrived at the Bull's Head Tavern. Uh, <laughs> another tavern. Another tavern on the Bowery near today's Canal Street, just south of Canal, at the outskirts, right, of the actual city at the time. And around the tavern then, a wild scene awaited Washington and his officers and the 800 troops who had escorted him down from Harlem. According to the 1892 book, The Memorial History of New York City, by James Grant Wilson, quote, The troops marched with the easy swing of old campaigners, and although their uniforms were tarnished, of various hues and irregular pattern, yet their arms were bright and their faces were shining with soldierly pride. They represented, in a sense, the old guard of that patriot army which had won peace and prosperity. So I'm envisioning a street party of some kind. Hundreds of people cramming onto the Bowery, led by Washington, a procession. What was their route into the city? Well, Washington and his entourage marched down the Bowery to today's Chatham Square and then continued straight along today's Pearl Street, called Queen Street at the time. Then that was going to be renamed. Then down to Wall Street, where they turned west and headed to Broadway, where, you know, right by Trinity Church, where they stopped at Cape's Tavern. (laughs) 
<laughs> and we're and we're officially welcomed by a delegation of citizens who proclaim that quote we look up to you our deliverer with usual transports of gratitude and joy hopping from tavern to tavern i love it i love when history takes us into taverns <laughs> yes hopping indeed but seriously, this was a profound moment for Washington, right? I mean, imagine, he looked about him and saw a dramatically changed New York City. He hadn't been on the spot, you know, across from Trinity since 1776. And now he looked about him and he saw the ruins of that church. He saw other burned buildings. He saw churches that had been sort of refitted into barracks for British troops. He saw treeless streets, right? They'd all been burned mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for firewood. He saw a city in disarray. This must have been such an intense sight. But then that was it? Like the city had just been handed over? There was no fighting? There was no sabotage? Well, there was a touch of sabotage, yes, because from Cape's Tavern there, soldiers continued down to the battery to, to take in the sight of the British ships sailing off, which was happening at the same time. But next up on the agenda was to lower the British flag from the flagpole at, at Fort George there in mm -hmm. the battery and raise the new American flag. However, according to the memorial history, quote, the artillery officer charged with the duty of hoisting the American flag discovered to his disgust that some facetious person, presumably a loyal, had removed the halyards, the, the ropes, and thoroughly soaped the flagstaff. Soaped it, Greg. <laughs> the old soaping the flagstaff trick. I had always read, though, that it was a greased flagpole. I, I, I mean, this source has it soaked, but soap, grease, it's all slippery. So it was, it was lubed. It was slick. It was slick. How were they going to climb the flagpole and take down the British flag? <laughs> this How? was the conundrum of the day. But Greg, the day was saved when a, quote, agile young sailor, later mm -hmm. identified as a man named John Van Arsdale, quote, was supplied with some rough wooden cleats and a pocket full of nails and slowly but surely worked his way to the top of the pole. Unquote, where he then installed new ropes for the flagpole, ripped down the old British flag, and hung a new American flag to the cheers of thousands who had gathered about it. Mm, amazing. Now, don't forget that soaped-up flagpole, because it's going to actually return to our story. <laughs> Highly unlikely that I will forget that soaped-up flagstaff. But back to your question, yes, in brief, the Americans had retaken New York without any real bloodshed save for one nose bloodied by an angry broom, if that's even a true story. Um, but th there were quickly military ceremonies right there in the battery, and then there was a reception that was back up at the Bull's Head Tavern, and then that night, innumerable private celebrations, you know, took place throughout the city, while Governor Clinton hosted a dinner party for General Washington and his officers at Francis Tavern, where a hundred people fetid Washington, you know, and the, the wine flowed freely. And famously, 13 toasts were given in rapid succession, ending in, quote, may the remembrance of this day be a lesson to princes. 
Wow. Uh, and these celebrations, by the way, perhaps not surprisingly, continued for a week. It must have yes. been one of the happiest weeks in the history of New York. <laughs> Indeed, um, Honestly, yes. Clinton threw another party for the French ambassador back mm-hmm. over at Cape's Tavern, um, mm-hmm. where they allegedly went through more than 130 bottles of wine, and there were only 120 people there. <laughs> well, it was for the French ambassador. Yeah, um, sure. and, and that's not even included. <laughs> including 60 bottles of beer. Um, According to Wallace and Burroughs in Gotham, they also somehow broke 60 wine glasses and eight wine decanters during the meal. So I don't know how 120 people break 60 glasses. (laughs) Um, It must have been a party. I'd also like to bring up an incident which occurred the day after evacuation day, which is pretty important. So Washington was golden here, right? He knew that even a brief appearance with him at this moment could rehabilitate any possible negative associations. And so that morning, he stopped by a tailor named Hercules Mulligan, who was an old friend of Alexander Hamilton and a former member of the Sons of Liberty, the pro-patriot unit. However, he was forced to stay in town during the war and stay as a tailor, and then forced to work on the uniforms of British officers. So now, with the British gone and the loyalists not very welcomed, many thought that Hercules Mulligan was a traitor. Washington knew otherwise, though. Mulligan had actually spied for the patriots during the war. So... That morning after evacuation day, Washington made a point to visit Mulligan, have breakfast with him, and then hire Mulligan as his tailor, immediately ending all that speculation. Hercules Mulligan would ride off this fame for the rest of his life thereafter. He would even hang up a shingle which said, Clothier of General Washington. Wow, what a story. And Greg, centuries later... Um, There's even a hard liquor named after him. But the city was not done celebrating Evacuation Day. Um, There was even an elaborate fireworks show on December 2nd. Yeah, and weirdly, even um, Mother Nature kind of got into it. I mean, according to the author James Grant Wilson, on November 29th, quote, In the evening, we felt a light shock of an earthquake. And at about 11 o'clock, there was a more violent one that shook all the city in a surprising manner. Wow. I mean, you can't even blame that on the rumbling of the subway because it wasn't even invented yet. No, no, it wouldn't open for another 121 years. <laughs> but Washington then called his top officers back to Francis Tavern for one last gathering, uh, this one quite emotional, on December 4th, 1783. It was the moment when General George Washington resigned his military commission. He had finished the job and was now prepared to step aside and leave New York as a private citizen. One of his officers, Colonel Talmadge, described the scene like this, quote, We had been assembled but a few moments when His Excellency entered the room. His emotion, too strong to be concealed, seemed to be reciprocated by every officer present. After partaking of a small refreshment in almost breathless silence, the general filled his glass with wine and turning to the officers said, with a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. They drank together and each officer came to him, took his hand, hugged and kissed him. 
such a scene of sorrow and weeping I have never before witnessed, unquote. From there, Washington and his troops walked down to Whitehall Street to the wharf, quote, where a prodigious crowd had assembled to witness the departure of the man who, under God, had been the great instrument in establishing the glory and independence of these United States. Washington took a seat on the barge as it pulled off into the East River. He turned to the crowd and waved his hat and, quote, bade us a silent adieu. But how will these momentous days be remembered in the future decades? We'll get to the rest of the story of Evacuation Day after this. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know it's not okay? not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. Now, things always look so definitive when you look back, you know, at a list of dates. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, the British left on evacuation day and the story of America begins. (laughs) But those who had aligned with the British... They hadn't all left town. In fact, most of them were still here. And there were paranoid fears that those that remained would attempt to take the reins of local government. As a result, the Sons of Liberty continued their harassment campaigns against anyone they believed to still be aligned with the Tories. And then the state government, led by Governor George Clinton, continued to pass anti-loyalist legislation. Estates, which were owned by loyalist-leaning landowners, say that five times fast, um, (laughs) these estates were chopped up and then were put up for auction. Yeah, one estate that we often mention on the show that was treated this way, chopped up and, you know, sold off, was the farm of James Delancey, um, Mm -hmm. which today comprises major portions of the Lower East Side. But this exercising, if you will, of the British presence in New York was really complicated. For example, what was to be done with Trinity Church and King's College? Yeah, Trinity Church, the religious arm of the crown. Its rector was actually the bishop, Benjamin Moore, a loyalist who remained in town and eventually would raise a son by the name of Clement Clark Moore up at his estate named Chelsea. Well, Mm -hmm. anyway, Moore remained in town after evacuation day, And his presence in the church was so offensive that he was eventually demoted to assistant in 1784 and replaced with a more politically acceptable choice, the priest Samuel Provost, 
the man who would later become the first chaplain of the United States Senate. And Trinity Church itself, which was part of the Church of England, as you mentioned, would become an Episcopal church. This would be the foundation to break with the Anglican church to its all-American cousin, the Episcopal church. And as for King's College, well, on May 1st, 1784, it was rechartered as Columbia College. So here we have then a very volatile city, right, and nation um, that is in transition and things are becoming detoured, if you mm-hmm. will, decrowned. Did New Yorkers mark that first anniversary of the British departure um, in 1784? Well, these first few years, I would say celebrations were kind of informal. Okay. In 1787... Congress at that time in Philadelphia began its work on the Constitution, and in 1789, Congress then moved to New York, which then for a short time became the nation's capital. So throughout this process, of course, the date of evacuation was evoked repeatedly in documents and proclamations and speeches by the founders as a historical marker, as a breaking point of the past. Hmm. Which is something that we do to July 4th today, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. The day that independence was declared at the beginning of the conflict. As the nation began building up credibility through these founding documents, and as New York started to get rebuilt here, the date November 25th became more important, but mostly only to people who lived here in New York. You know, people in other cities hadn't experienced the British leaving on that date, obviously. Mm-hmm. For New Yorkers, however, it was a really profound moment, and thus eventually worth celebrating. In 1787, a military brigade stationed at Fort George at the tip of the island marched up Broadway to the city commons, where today's city hall is today, marking what we might consider the first public celebration of Evacuation Day as a holiday. Mm. There was also something political at a moment when the nation was debating how strong the federal government should be I mean, Evacuation Day also sort of celebrated a strong central government. Yeah, it was kind of aspirational and basically a demonstration sponsored by the Federalist Party, which had its base here in New York and was championed by our old good friend, Alexander Hamilton. Mm -hmm. The idea of a strong and powerful central government. Now, what I'm about to say here might be controversial to some people. Oh boy, here we go. Yes. On October 3rd, 1789, President George Washington issued a Thanksgiving proclamation that was rather religious in nature, marking, quote, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be. 
given under my hand at the city of New York, the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789, signed George Washington. <laughs> That's it? I was, um, I was prepared to be triggered. What's so controversial, <laughs> Greg? Well, in 1789, the capital of the nation was New York. George yeah. Washington issued the proclamation from New York. The date of Thanksgiving in his proclamation was placed one day after evacuation day. So while it is not precisely stated, it is very likely that the date of Thanksgiving was chosen for its proximity to evacuation day. Like they evacuated and the next day you offer your thanks. Hold on. Thanksgiving had been a New England tradition, right? Tracing back to the pilgrims and even further back to more religious, you know, Thanksgiving ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And other countries have Thanksgiving on other dates. And it was even celebrated at various times in many New England regions, often in the autumn. Right. It was a celebration of the bountiful harvest. But this designation by Washington placed the Thanksgiving holiday right next to Evacuation Day. But as you'll get to, eventually Thanksgiving would usurp Evacuation Day on the calendar. You could even say it gobbled it up. But uh, <laughs> getting back here to New York, did Evacuation Day then become more than just a Federalist celebration? Well, the growing political alternatives of the day, in particular those of the newly formed Tammany Society, which, as we know, would later become the all-powerful Tammany Hall, mm -hmm. well, they would host rival banquets that were almost in jest or in slight mockery of the Federalist Party, loosening it up a bit, you know, putting on some razzle-dazzle. <laughs> but this actually had the effect of making Evacuation Day more of a mainstream celebration. And soon, everybody was celebrating it, rich and poor, celebrating it in their own ways. By the start of the 19th century, there were annual parades. People got to take off work or school, which is itself a pretty big deal back then. Mm -hmm. They all had parties. They went to a museum or to the theater where they would take in patriotic-themed entertainments. There were even dazzling illuminated transparencies projected onto walls at night. And, of mm -hmm. course, there were fireworks. And, of course, there would be the annual greased pole ceremony, or as you say, soaped up pole ceremony. <laughs> Let's just leave it alone. Yes, the old <laughs> pole. Well, it all sounds so merry, but can we just address something, Greg? Did they call it uh -huh. evacuation day? I mean, I don't want to be vulgar or, you know, think basically like a teenage boy, but doesn't evacuation have other meanings? Like, you know, bodily functions, etc. Like expulsion from the body. Well, yes, and it did then also. I found a hilarious quote from the London Guardian newspaper in the year 1822. Quote, the 25th of November is observed as a holiday in New York under the odd name of Evacuation Day, not on account of any medical practices, but because it is the anniversary of the departure from that city by the British. Uh, oh, those cheeky Brits. Um, <laughs> I also found a quote 
from the novelist and historian Kevin Baker, um, who told the New York Times in 2016, quote, Evacuation day is what results when bad names happen to perfectly good holidays. <laughs> <laughs> I get the feeling from that Guardian article from 1822 that the holiday was probably not very well known, right? I mean, was it being celebrated anywhere else? Kinda. So, Evacuation Day was primarily a celebration in New York, but it was also celebrated in the independent city of Brooklyn and other localities, even some areas of New Jersey. But I failed to find very many mentions of it, honestly, in other American newspapers. And when it was mentioned, it was strictly framed as a local tradition, but one that would begin to get enshrined in myth as the Revolutionary War generation began dying off. In fact, it was in the 1820s and 30s that the term evacuation day really began taking hold. And then as time was passing, did people celebrate it in the same way? I mean, you know, the same old flagpole stuff? <laughs> well, think about certain holidays that we have today, which lose a bit of their meaning. They eventually just become you know, a day off for many people, a day of leisure. But there were some big parades. They continued, even if some of that meaning was lost. And in fact, those flagpole ceremonies still remained, you know, even for a few decades here. First with John Van Ardstel, the original dude who climbed the soaked up pole and ripped down the British flag. With and his then, wooden cleats. Yes, with his cleats. And when he passed in the year 1836, the tradition was carried on by members of his family. Although even by this time, it was beginning to seem a bit old-fashioned. Yeah, by the middle of the 19th century, interest in the holiday was fading. And as you mentioned, you know, one reason I think is pretty straightforward. By then, there were fewer people who had actually been around during the war itself, right? There were few people living by the mid-1800s who had actually witnessed the British occupation of New York. Which meant that not only did Evacuation Day seem more remote and abstract, but also the commemorations of the war itself, yeah, obviously passions, you know, are strong immediately following something, you know, like a war or a tragedy. But we've even seen in our lifetimes, you know, how these events that we've witnessed recede, you know, in the public conscious as new generations are born who never lived through them. But I want to go back to that London Guardian clip that you read a minute ago. It wasn't only the foreign press who mused, you know, about this holiday. Even American papers wondered about it. The, the Portland Advertiser, for example, wrote in 1834, quote, Why the New Yorkers celebrate this evacuation day annually, I don't know. Isn't it as well to forget that an enemy once had possession of your city? It's interesting that this writer didn't see the national importance of this event. The yeah. fact that New York had been this British command center and that in leaving New York, the British were essentially leaving the U.S. for good. Yes, those nuances, I think, were lost, you know, as the years went by. Yeah, and, you know, eventually, of course, then America was consumed by other conflicts, like the Civil War. Right, and it was harder to celebrate something that signified the United States when we were divided. 
Although as the city's demographics changed in the mid-19th century with the influx of you know, European immigrants, Evacuation Day was embraced by a new set of New Yorkers, Irish New Yorkers, who were quite happy you know, to take part <laughs> in a celebration that was clearly anti-British in its very nature. Yeah, this is a tricky thing about this holiday, we have to admit. It's, it's not just that it's pro-American. It's, it's, there's an aspect of it that's very specifically anti-British. Yeah, and that will come back to the story in a moment. But first, Greg, there was one more big blowout celebration. Because you know, Greg, that New Yorkers love their anniversaries. <laughs> Let's throw a multi-day party. Yes, which is exactly what happened for the centennial celebration of Evacuation Day in November 1883. Oh, right in the middle of the Gilded Age. Literally the year that this season of the Gilded Age TV show takes place. Yes. Huh. Hmm. Will Agnes Van Ryn throw an evacuation day party with Aurora Fane? Wait and see, Greg. Wait and see. No spoilers. <laughs> I, I expect to see Oscar marching in a volunteer militia up Broadway. My lips are sealed. <laughs> But the city leaders really got into the act with special events and a parade that consisted of more than 20,000 people heading down Broadway. Um, and of course, a fireworks extravaganza. This was a party that was witnessed and enjoyed by a half a million people. Wow. Are there any remaining vestiges of this party today that we can see? Well, as a matter of fact, one very prominent work of art still stands today, very well known in front of the Federal Hall National Memorial. I'm talking, of course, about the 1883 bronze statue of George Washington by sculptor John Quincy Adams Ward. The sculpture was unveiled here near the spot where George Washington was sworn in as the first president of the United States in 1789. But it was unveiled on this 100th anniversary of Evacuation Day in 1883. So many statues, in fact, would be unveiled on Evacuation Day. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Webster in Central Park had an mm -hmm. Evacuation Day unveiling. The Nathan Hale statue in City Hall Park. Yes, and others too. Evacuation Day would become like the city, the sort of patriotic city day, right, to unveil things. <laughs> <laughs> had to just line up statues when you saw the date coming. So what happened? I think a couple of things happened. Let's rewind a few decades to the mid-19th century and to that other holiday that you mentioned, mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, which had been already celebrated, you know, on different dates around the country in different regions. In the 1840s, New Yorkers celebrated both Evacuation Day and Thanksgiving on the same day on November 25th. But then in 1863, President Lincoln proclaimed that Thanksgiving should be celebrated that year on the last Thursday of November, which in 1863 was on November 26th. And that had sort of deflated the whole evacuation day party mm -hmm. that year. And then I think that sort of last Thursday of November tradition just stuck. And the day then always fell right around or even on the 25th itself. And so I think that evacuation day just sort of felt, you know, secondary to Thanksgiving. And let us not forget that most of the country didn't really celebrate it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So by the early 20th century, 
Evacuation Day was losing popularity. And finally, New York officially celebrated Evacuation Day for the last time on November 25th, 1916, when, according to the New York Times, quote, about 60 uniformed veterans of the old guard of the city of New York rode the subway from their midtown armory to City Hall and marched down Broadway for a flag-raising ceremony. Mm, 60 people, which sounds a bit underwhelming. Especially considering the fact, as was pointed out in another article in the Times, that on the same day, Greg, 45,000 spectators crammed into the old polo grounds to watch Mm -hmm. the Army-Navy football game. And 60 men marched down Broadway. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. times had changed. Well, and that was 1916, as war was raging in Europe, and the year before the United States entered that war. Yes, entered the war with England and France and other allies. And now that we were allied with England, you know, and soon sending our own troops over to France and elsewhere to fight for England and others, why would we celebrate something that represented, you know, a break with England. It just, it no longer really made sense. So between that and Thanksgiving basically taking over its position on the Mm -hmm. calendar here, it sounds like Evacuation Day just didn't have much of a chance. Yeah, I searched, you know, for celebrations surrounding its 200th anniversary and its bicentennial, And there was a a special exhibit at Francis Tavern, but I mean, that article was kind of buried deep in the papers, you know, like, in other news, this wacky old holiday. So it had sort of been relegated, you know, to the category of trivia. Which does seem like a pity, right? I mean, there's this big moment in American history, very significant, and today it's largely overlooked. Yeah, although there was recently a campaign to at least bring back the name Evacuation Day to Lower Manhattan and to Bowling Green. James Kaplan of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association and Arthur Piccolo, chairman of the Bowling Green Association, lobbied to have part of Bowling Green renamed Evacuation Day Plaza back in 2016. It was initially rejected by the city on technicalities, but then it was finally approved. So you can visit this spot today in Bowling Green for yourself and celebrate Evacuation Day. Or, of course, you know, you can stop by Francis Tavern anytime to celebrate Evacuation Day. Bringing it back to the taverns, of course, because, of course, they never stop celebrating the holiday. Never. In fact, check out francistavernmuseum.org to learn about visiting the museum and find out how you can take one of their excellent public tours. Finally, if you want to celebrate Evacuation Day on top of your Thanksgiving feast or even separately, my advice would be to find some traditional July the 4th decorations and combine them with both colonial items and maybe even English things, you know, maybe food items that you would pack Mm. for the British Redcoats as they boarded the ships back home, like little (laughs) cupcakes with little Union Jacks, maybe, with the words Mm. written in icing, bon voyage, (laughs) or even fold it in with Christmas. Uh, Put a festive greased pole, a soaped pole by the Christmas tree. Blend it all together. Please don't. (laughs) Leave the Christmas tree alone, please. (laughs) 
All right, we've had enough fun. Visit our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have images of some of the events that were depicted on this show today. Then, you know, over on Instagram and threads, you may see an image or two of some evacuation day items that I'm cooking up for my own celebration this year. How exciting. Well, those those of you who support us on Patreon.com will receive a bonus podcast um, called Side Streets. Our recent Side Streets episode takes you, the listener, backstage at Joe's Pub. We discussed kind of like, I believe you called it the aftermath of the show. I don't, I think that's a yes. strong word. Um, <laughs> the, the, let's just say it takes you backstage. We, we talk about putting on the show and just really the, the blast that we had putting on the Halloween show this year. Also, if you sign up at the $10 level, you get Bowery Boys episodes early and ad-free. So you can check out all of your options at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And we thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do the show without you. Carl Raymond, the Gilded Gentleman, has an excellent slate of weekly shows for the next month or two on all sorts of fascinating topics on the Gilded Age. Yes, and he's also leading a Gilded Age bus tour up to Lindhurst Mansion. That's Jay Gould's former home um, up in Terrytown, And that is on Saturday, December 9th, 2023. You can literally join Carl on the bus and head up to, to Lindhurst. It sounds like so much fun. Yeah, and he, he's going to do a tie-in Jay Gould show. So it's, it's going to be like a big event that we encourage everyone to join in on. You can get your spot on that bus and book other fabulous walking tours with our guides all over New York City at BoweryBoysWalks.com. And of course, you can hear Tom talking Gilded Age subjects over at the official Gilded Age podcast, which is a tie-in to the HBO series The Gilded Age, streaming on Max. And you're even talking about Jay Gould. I can't stop talking about Jay Gould. <laughs> Jay Gould is not only the inspiration, one of the inspirations for George Russell, in this season, as we've already seen, he himself makes some appearances. He's he's in it. Jay is there wow. sitting across from George Russell. I was like, I mean, that just nearly put me over the top when I first saw that. <laughs> That's what does it, folks. That's what does it. This episode was edited by Kieran Gannon. Thank you, Kieran. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey everyone, this is Tom. Just a quick note that season two of HBO's series, The Gilded Age, is now live on Max. And that means, so is the official Gilded Age podcast, which I'm hosting, along with Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. Every week, we dig deep into the drama and the history behind what you see on your screen. If you like the Bowery Boys, the Gilded Age TV show and podcast is made for you. Listen to HBO's The Official Gilded Age Podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.